Hi there, it's me, your host for Prolific, a podcast journey through rhetoric, composition, and technical communication. It's been a while, about two years, and a lot has happened. So let's run through what's changed. During the last bunch of episodes, I was a graduate student in the master's program at Texas Tech University, majoring in technical communication and rhetoric. Well, um, since then, I've graduated and was accepted into the PhD program in writing and rhetoric at Michigan State University. So now I'm in the Writing, Rhetoric, and American Cultures program. So go me. So sorry about the lack of episodes. I swear there was a valid reason. For now, I can say that in addition to this episode, you can look forward to three more episodes, and all of them are going to follow this format. First, to give the episode some more of that backstory, I'm going to focus on a particular movement within the field from now on. So for this episode, I'm going to run through the history of queer theory as it's been implemented into composition studies. The beginning of each episode will begin with that historical review, and I'll go through some of the major pieces that are in that history. Then, I'll go over the key people within that movement, running through their contributions, and finally, I'll move into a conversation I had with some folks at MSU about queer theory and composition studies. So, the episode will be a little longer than what the show has been in the past, which kind of makes it more legit, I think, right? (laughs) So, uh, for now, sit back and let me tell you a bit about queer theory and composition studies. Welcome to Prolific Headquarters, where we'll be going over queer theory and composition studies. I put together a nice little timeline for us to go through, so I think we should begin at the beginning. And the beginning starts in 1981 with a report called Homophobia and the Academy, a report on the Committee of Gay Lesbian Concerns by Louis Crew and Karen Keener. It was published in College English, and it covered multiple instances of homophobia against folks working across multiple fields in English. The report stemmed from the National Council of Teachers of English, or NCTE, asking the authors to assess the field after a mass shooting that specifically targeted gay men occurred a year before. The report found, of course, that things were a little more hostile toward gay and lesbian people in the field as some would have thought or liked, and the report went on to spur all sorts of conversations that were published in the journal. I highly recommend looking some of these up. Uh, They should show up if you just search the title of the report in your library search bar, because a lot of what is said is kind of indicative of what queer looked like at the time. Most people were barely coming to grips that gay and lesbian folk weren't monsters, and of course it's still going on today, but this particular report marks the start of a continuing inclusion of LGBT perspectives. Now, I feel like I have to distinguish a key aspect of the timeline here. This timeline is meant to cover queer theory and composition studies, but it can't really begin until we look at when queer lives or LGBTQ lives were first allowed to be included in the comp classroom. I also feel like at this point, I should note that queer might not necessarily mean the same thing as LGBT. I spotlight this particular report because it begins a trend of including LGBT people in the field and in research. And with that inclusion came queer theory. Um, In other words, gays and lesbians started being accounted for, and with that, a queer theory started to be accounted for. 
So let's actually get into queer theory and composition studies. Now, if you're interested in queer theory and comp, there are, without a doubt, two articles you have to look up. First, look up Queer Compositions, Queer Theory in the Writing Classroom by Jonathan Alexander and Michelle Gibson. And the second one is Sexualities, Technologies, and the Teaching of Writing, a Critical Overview by Alexander and Will Banks. The first is in Jack, and the second one is in Computers and Composition, and both were published in 2004. They both run through some of the trends pertaining to LGBT identities in comp studies, and they're also a great resource for learning about particular pieces pertaining to topics that fall within queer studies and comp. Real talk, they're invaluable for learning about queer studies in comp, and I have to point you to those two articles to learn more. Once you read through, you should get this general sense of the trends queer studies followed in composition. Of course, I'm still going to go through those trends in this podcast because that's what it's for. <laughs> uh, so let's get to that. So... After the report, people started to research what happens when LGBT lives are actually counted in the classroom. Um, And by counted, I mean accounted for as well. So we get articles exploring LGBT identity in the comp classroom, like Type Normal Like the Rest of Us from Allison Regan in 1993. There's also Coming Out in the Classroom, A Return to a Hard Place by Mary Elliott in 1996. And then there's Out There on the Web, Pedagogy and Identity in Face of Opposition by Scott Lloyd DeWitt in 1997. And finally, there's By Butch and Bardike, Pedagogical Performances of Class, Gender, and Sexuality by Michelle Gibson, Martha Marinera, and Deborah Meme in 2000. And I bring up these particular pieces because they're useful for looking at the scholarship during the early to late 1990s and 2000 itself, of course, and what that scholarship had to say about what happens when we include LGBT identities. So a lot of people critiqued this inclusion because they saw it as kind of a neoliberal, multicultural imperative where we were just including LGBT stories into the academy and into the comp classroom just for the sake of expanding the canon uh, without any real critical engagement of why LGBT people are oppressed in society in the first place. From this point, we move into the early to mid-2000s, and these pieces begin to analyze the writing classroom itself and its overall position within the university. Here, we see a move towards self-reflection with the queer bent rather than a queer inclusion. Now, there was a huge explosion of scholarship pertaining to queer studies and theory and composition studies, so I'm going to run through a couple of articles that kind of encapsulate what people were going for during this time. First, there's Disintegrating the Gay-Queer Binary, Reconstructed Identity Politics for Performative Pedagogy by Karen Copelson in 2002. Then we have Risking Queer, Pedagogy, Performativity, and Desire in Writing Classrooms by Connie Monson and Jackie Rhodes in 2004. From there, we have Homo Origo, The Queer Text Manifesto by Rhodes in 2004, and then Queering the Contact Zone by Jan Cooper in 2004 as well. After that, we have Straight Boys for Sync: Queer Theory and the Composition of Heterosexuality by Alexander in 2005, and then Alexander's book, Literacy, Sexuality, Pedagogy, Theory and Practice for Composition Studies, which was published in 2008. There are, of course, way more articles out there for you to look up in terms of queer theory and composition studies during this time. However, like the two articles that I mentioned earlier, there is another article that was published in 2009 that reviews this scholarship and synthesizes it to see what queer theory and queer studies looks like in composition during that time. The Queer Turn in Composition Studies, Reviewing and Assessing an Emerging Scholarship, was published by Jonathan Alexander and David Wallace, and in it, they pay attention to three particular turns in composition studies as it relates to queer studies. First, they look at the way that the field started to combat homophobia, which, of course, we talked about at the beginning of this episode with the report. 
Then they moved on to the inclusion of LGBT stories in the comp classroom. And they conclude by looking at the way homo and hetero binaries were broken down in the comp classroom through the inclusion of LGBT scholarship and literature. To them, looking at these three turns, we can see how the inclusion of queer studies in comp allows us to use composition as something that students can then use to interrogate the world around them, looking at how power structures keep in place sometimes oppressive notions of gender and sexuality. So at this point in the episode, we're going to focus on a very particular article that sort of brings to a head queer theory in comp studies, Queer, an Impossible Subject for Composition, published in 2011 by Alexander and Rhodes. By this point, you might have noticed that I've mentioned these two names quite a lot, Jonathan Alexander and Jackie Rhodes. Before I talk more about them, here's a fun story about the first time I met both of them. When I met Rhodes, I had come up to MSU from Texas for the recruitment event. I sat down in her office and immediately queered out. Oh my god, your writing has influenced everything I think about with queer rhetoric and your totally academic goals. I said this to her, and I'm pretty sure I was super annoying. (laughs) And for Alexander, I actually didn't meet him, but rather I debated on introducing myself, which made the opportunity pass. I was at Four Seas in Houston in 2015, and I was with my cohort in my MA program. Once I spotted him, I immediately was like, oh my gosh, I have to go say hello. But then I started fretting over what I would say and whether I would look like a creeper, and my cohort, bless them, just told me to go. But by the time I made up my mind, he was gone, and that's my story. (laughs) Now, you might be wondering why I'm mentioning this. It's because Alexander and Rhodes are a big deal in queer rhetoric and in composition. Of course, every person I've mentioned in this podcast thus far, especially Karen Copelson and Michelle Gibson, are big deals. But Rhodes and Alexander have helped to shape contemporary queer composition studies, which leads to the piece that I just mentioned. In Queer and Impossible Subject, they argue that queer theory and comp studies are incompatible with each other because, as they say, we cannot compose a queer self because composition itself is an entirely heterosexual endeavor. In other words, composition is something that exists within the broader power structure held up by a heterosexist, patriarchal society, and queer is, arguably, incompatible with it. Put another way, queer decomposes, while the field, as its name implies, composes. And that distinction lies the tension, and now things start to get a little iffy. During my research, I haven't really found any scholarship that follows what Alexander and Rhodes call for in that piece. Uh, truthfully, I don't know if it's because they left it at impossibility and people agree, or if folks are trying to grapple with what impossibility and queerness means in composition. Uh, I myself am torn between the two. The other day, I was talking about the piece to someone in my PhD cohort, and he made the point that, as a gay man, he is in composition studies. He embodies the potential queerness to be in comp studies simply by being in it. And that's a good point. And it's also a really good segue into the next part of the podcast, the conversation. With this conversation, I sat down with four other graduate students in the RAC program here at MSU. We talked about queer theory, its place within composition, and impossibility, so I hope you enjoy it. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me. It should be in the show notes. And speaking of the show notes, check those out for some nice APA-style citations of the articles I mentioned in this podcast and in the conversation that's coming up. It's nice to be back in the podcast business, I have to say, and I hope you, listeners, stick around for what else Prolific has in store. So, until next time. God bless. Um, okay, so... 
This is another episode of Prolific. Um, after all these years, it's been about two years, so it's been a while since I've done one of these. Um, I'm in a new school, which is interesting, and I'm meeting a lot of cool people. So let's get to meet those cool people. Who wants to go first? Do we do... I guess they can't see this, but I'm pointing. Do you want to go first, or do you want to go first? I'll go first. Um, okay. I kind of want to. Um, not to throw. Please. Um, well, anyways, uh, my name is Jay. Um, I think it's important to mention, especially for a podcast medium, my pronouns are she, her. Um, and I am a student at MSU. Um, I... I was not really into doing much queer theory before I came to MSU. Um, that mostly has to do with um, just a general caution towards the way that academia sort of approaches right. queer theory. Um, and sort of embraced it as a way of also being able to interrogate my own sort of relationships with the world and the way my own body like sort of moves throughout this sort of space. Um, and I'll just let it go on. No, that's the episode. Okay, see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, my name is Autumn. I am also a grad student at Michigan State University. Uh, and what, what all are we covering? Oh, you can just uh, talk a little bit about yourself, or you can just introduce yourself. Okay. Um, oh, and my, my pronouns are she, her, she, her or they, them. Um, and, yeah, I am interested in... I'm interested in queer theory in the sense um, of, like, resituating it and the way that it's talked about, and that's something that I know, like, me and Jay have talked a lot about, um, and I don't want to take credit for that, but I'm into it, um, and, yeah, I'm also interested in disability studies and multimodal composition and how we compose ourselves so a lot of coincidentally theory. the next episodes are going to be about those topics so <laughs> expect an email from me or a hey. facebook message okay um i'm annalisa and i'm also a student master's student here uh in rack um and I first encountered queer theory here at Michigan State, and quite frankly, I first encountered queer people here at Michigan State, um, or people who identified as queer. Um, and so encountering queer theory for me was uh, very much a process of interrogating my own straightness and having to unpack those privileges that come with that and um, what that means and a bunch of other stuff. So that's what it's, it's been a... It's been that process. Cool. <laughs> uh, my name is Raquel. I am also a master's student here at Michigan State. Um, I entered queer theory with a lot of resistance and still think I do in a lot of ways. Like I, My friends and I joke and call it ally rhetoric <laughs> mm. for obvious reasons. Um, and even when it's not ally rhetoric, it's oftentimes like thin cis white men. Um, which none of those are my subjectivities. Um, so I've often had to find like other entry points for my queerness, like through Latinidad. And so um, yeah, I'm interested in like um, re-envisioning the way that we compose ourselves in, in these spaces. Okay, God, thank God. Thank God I'm recording. <laughs> At first I forgot, I, I thought I forgot to click that. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> like you just all said your name for no reason. Two, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so I guess we can start talking about what queer theory looked like when it first came into composition. I should say we're talking about queer theory specifically as it relates to composition. So this project is supposed to be about composition studies, and I wanted to explore a little bit about what people saw queer theory doing in composition and what they see it, where they see it going, I should say. Um, so we can talk about like what it looked like when it first got into comp studies. I have a little timeline here that shows like the first kind of instance where like LGBTQ, etc., was talked about in comp studies. And it was a 1981 report called Homophobia in the Academy. So it was basically a bunch of peeps getting together and saying, hey, we're getting a bunch of bad treatment from like other people in our field. So what are y'all going to do about that? And it was in college English. So I'm just going to throw that out at y'all. <laughs> y'all did something. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess like my, my interest sort of with the origins of it, I guess, um, to me, my suspicion is that it follows the same sort of track as um, a lot of the um, LGBT movement in the sense that, like, the voices that are being allowed to speak, and in this case be published, are the ones that are those sort of, like, white cis head voices. Yeah. Not head, I guess. But, yeah. Literally uh, every name on here is, is white Charles. cis person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Michelle. Um... I literally <laughs> used Michelle, and my first thought was Obama. <laughs> She's also a guest. <laughs> Surprise! Um, <laughs> but, anyways, um, yeah, my that's sort of my impression of it. Um, and I think a lot of that does have to do um, with the fact that, like, I very well think that um, compositionists who were, um, if we want to use the word more queer, I guess, that's a weird quantifier, but who were um, people of color, um, who were poor, first-gen, who were disabled, who were LGBT, and all these intersections, um, weren't probably given the opportunity to publish and speak on their subjective experience at this time, because right. even today, like, um, using yourself as a site of interrogation is almost exclusively reserved for white people when it comes to the validity of it. And and it makes me wonder, kind of going off what you're what you're saying, Jay, about um, the poor, like brown or black homeless queer folk. Like they were not in the academy and to begin with. <laughs> um, and it's interesting that like this study is coming out um, in the 80s, like that's like height of AIDS epidemic, right? Yeah, 1981, I looked it up, that's the exact same year. Like it was about, I think like a couple of months before or after the CDC first reported on the first instance of AIDS. Mm -hmm. First instance. Um, first, yeah. Yeah, but like that, there, like there's almost certainly like correlation there. Um, so I just, it, 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 it's interesting to me that you know, to an extent, this position of the academy is a place of privilege in and of itself. Like, we're all, we all, all of us here are, like, inherently privileged because we can be here. Um, that doesn't mean, like, other intersections of our identity, like, don't matter. It's just kind of, like, this is a place of privilege. And mm -hmm. I don't know, like, 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 who, where were the other queers, I guess, like, like, who were getting killed, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, one thing I had to hesitate to say there for a moment when I first started talking um, was I almost said that like it mimicked a lot of the early LGBT movements, and in some ways it did. Um, like San Francisco was a very whitewashed movement, um, but I mean, if we're going to use sort of Stonewall as like the example of like the early like big breakout thing that was trans women of color mm-hmm. mostly, like it wasn't that specifically, and those those women went on to do organizing in New York and that sort of thing. So it wasn't like that wasn't present. It's just, it's often forgotten about, it's not like published about history. or talked about yeah. because it's like those bodies and lives aren't valued mm-hmm. despite all the work they've done. And then we get movies like Stonewall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can talk about it if you want. Um, interestingly enough, not, well, I can't see. <laughs> Did not watch. Don't want to watch. <laughs> Zero out of ten would not want to watch. Um, so I was, like, looking up different articles, going through the, like, kind of going through a specific timeline, and most of it was, like, nuts. I didn't see anything about, like, queer movements in composition studies. It was more so, like, oh, I have to go back into the closet as a professor, or um, I came out to my students, this is what it looks like. Hmm. Or I have students who came out to me online, this is what that looked like. Kind of exploring getting at the multimodal aspect of composition studies and exploring what queerness looked like there, or at least LGBTQ plus identity. Um, There wasn't really any mention about, you know, HIV, the HIV AIDS epidemic or anything like that. I saw that mostly in other journals, like aside from College English or from uh, Three C's, right? College Composition, yes. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna edit that to make me sound smart. The conference, (laughs) the conference part is only. And it was more so like, um, here's the rhetoric of, you know, how people talked about AIDS during this time or something like that. There was no real mention of like trying to connect the, what was going on like outside of the academy into like students' lives. Sorry. Um, what strikes me with what you just said is it sounds like the academy is divorcing the embodied experience of queer mm-hmm. people basically from... Um, the research they're doing. Yeah. Essentially. Uh, I, yeah, it gets back to, for me, like, because this is something that is so present on my mind lately, I guess, is using your own body as a site of interrogation and as a site where, like, conflict can be recognized and everything. And, um, I mean, with Rhodes and Alexander's, like, publishing of Techni, um, I feel like that's sort of a good example of Again, mostly for white people, it's acceptable to do that sort of interrogation and use your body as a site of research um, when it comes to queer theory. Um, and it sounds like here with these sort of like AIDS reports and stuff like that, like they're like specifically trying to divorce the queer body from their research. Right. I, I'll just say, I think the disembodiment that sometimes happens in queer theory and specifically for, like queer composition theory is can be sort of um, not sort of, like like dangerous because for me this like word queer and queer theory is so much about the actual bodies that are mm-hmm. that are present and and the sex like the, yeah. the sexual yeah. desire and, and it's about desire and um, and when we, something that I see happening or p- 
po the possibility of happening, I definitely see it happening, is when we say like we're doing queer composition and suddenly what we're doing is actually just digital composition. Yeah. <laughs> or we're making an infograph and saying like, it's not an essay, so I've queered it. Like, that's super problematic because... Yeah, going back to Techne, right? I mean, that's basically just a huge web text that doesn't have good um, navigation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's, that's literally all it is. Yeah. No, no shade there, but that's literally I'm, all it is. You're not the only person here who has yeah. thrown okay. shade on Techne, because I definitely did mm -hmm. last semester. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of pushback from it in our class. I think if you're going to make a nonlinear text, you've got to go all the fucking way out there with it. Like, I don't think it's that. It's an in-between. Yeah. And um, I've had conversation with Rhodes about that and, like, specifically, like, again, towards this question of being published and heard, basically your voice validated within the academy. There were certain things they had to do in order to make that happen. Right. There are like navigation things that were added after the text was constructed simply because the publisher was like, we're not going to publish it without this. And that kind of gets at constraining queerness, right? Which Rhodes and Alexander talk about a lot too, right? Mm -hmm. um, I hate to just always cite them, but it's pretty much going to always be a citation of them in this because they're literally like the biggest names in queer composition. And it's hard to talk about it without talking about them. But a lot of what they write about, like, uh, in a queer, what is it? An impossible subject. An impossible, yeah. Um, in that, that's basically literally their point, is that you can't just, you know, yeah. try to fit queer within this thing that is obviously not queer because the historicity of it, it just doesn't, it's not compatible. Like, your, your composition is in this institution that's like, white supremacist and heterosexual and or heterosexist and all these are the things that why would queer ever fit there like it's impossible but then part of me is like well I have a career after this and I would like to explore this so <laughs> there has to be some room but then I wonder about the ethics about that I think um, your point about queerness not fitting within the academy um so i've been like reading and rereading that piece queer and impossible setup for composition because i plan to cite it on a piece on autoethnography about disability because i think it's applicable there too um but i like one of the things that i fall back on a lot or not fall back on but like i think one of the things that rose and alexander fall back on a lot and I am curious to know what your guys' take on this is, is the concept of queerness being, like, undefinable and, like, I don't want to say abstract, but, like, queerness being this kind of, like, oh, you, you don't define queer. Um, and I, th I feel like that goes kind of back to this whole, like, separation of, like, embodied and lived experiences of queer people mm -hmm. who, like you know, can tell you, like, well, I mean, obviously, like, someone knows what queerness is and has a definition for it, and, you know, like, I, I don't know, I don't know, I, I just think, like, keeping queer in this, like, abstract, like, thing kind of is dangerous, but then that gets tricky when you see the word queer being used as, like, a verb all the time, like, I see things, like, being like, well, let's queer the classroom, like, you know, my mentor just said that, my teaching mentor just said that to me today. He told me that I was querying the classroom because I had them do an improv activity, which, I mean, 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so like, like. Have you guys ever seen the queer show Whose Line Is It Anyways? <laughs> <laughs> Such a gay representation. Drew Carey. Queer icon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I I I don't know. I don't want to like say that there is a definition of queerness, but I think that keeping a definition out of the conversation keeps us from having to talk about actual bodies. So. I. Um, yes. <laughs> so, not to connect everything back to indigenous things, but Quoley Driscoll um, writes fantastic. has is fantastic. Yes, and they write about um, one of their phrases that like just stuck with me is colonial legibility, um, and he they talk about um, colonizers coming to the Americas running into. Or over is probably a more accurate um, preposition, but um, indigenous peoples and reading colonial genders and colonial mm-hmm. like everything onto um, indigenous peoples, and um, so they're, they're literally mapping like the terms man and woman onto. And I really think that that term colonial legibility is helpful when we're thinking about defining queerness because I think the issue when we say that like queer is undefinable what we're actually well maybe not actually but one thing that we might be referencing is it's undefinable in like colonial terms and in this colonial mindset of whiteness and and um, the patriarchy and all of these things and so queer is an impossible subject for the academy Mm -hmm. and for composition and for colonialism be, be, does that make sense? Like there's two yeah, different like queerness at least the way that I'm thinking about queerness kind of arises from those colonial contexts like it arose out of a pool of these colonial subjects who created society and have kept it going uh, by you know like straight people getting together and having kids and them continuing mm-hmm. on and government saying that's important let's uh, circulate capital through their through reproduction and then queers come along and say, well, I don't want to do this. And I'm not going to have children. Fuck <laughs> society. Just like that. But then, like, as a queer subject, you are colonized. But then queerness itself is kind of incompatible with that colonial, that coloniality that, like, you're saying. Because they just, it's kind of, at this, uh, it's hard to talk about it. Because I'm not smart enough. Um... Well, the, the, the bodies of queer mm-hmm. people and the theory of queerness both are made illegible by coloniality. Yeah. And we are rooted in an academic system and just a society that is colonial. So all these colonial people literally cannot read yeah. queerness as it should be read. And so they're composing queerness into this other mm-hmm. thing that is actually very colonial. Right. That was that was a way better. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, listeners, everything she just said—that that was me. <laughs> you can't tell. Um, Raquel, did you want to add anything? Uh, no, no, yeah. that's great. Um, good job. <laughs> good job. Yeah, the way that I've always like, so I have to do. I'm doing an independent study on basically um, queerness and pedagogy and that sort of stuff. And um, one thing that was sort of tasked to me was defining queerness. And I, like, for me, a definition involved 
how the, like you said, Will, the state has something that they want to reproduce and whatnot, and they're invested in reproducing that thing, and that thing is a white colonial subject and Mm -hmm. stuff. And so for me, um, queerness sort of represents being removed by various degrees from that. So um, me in a white body means that I'm not necessarily as removed from it as other people who aren't white. Um, but like me in the trans body and that sort of stuff like also complicates that. But yeah. basically that um, the state wants to reproduce white bodies and exploit all other people. Um, and so for me, whenever I talked about queerness, I sort of talked about it in terms of like, is your body put in danger by the state because the state does not see you as valuable to like reproduce basically. I like that because it kind of prioritizes the body Mm -hmm. and harm. I'm trying to think through that and like extrapolate that and like apply Like think of the state as composition studies. And apply what you just said to composition studies, and it's hard. Yeah, yeah. I I try to like think of it in terms of like, I if I um, on days where I pass as a cis het white person, I don't like to identify as queer because my body is not in any immediate danger. Right. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, um. So that's just sort of like my sort of way of negotiating queerness is, I mean, sometimes I am because, like, I might get the shit beat out of me at a ga- in a gas station parking lot, um, but other days I'm not because no one's, I'm not, like, appearing out of the ordinary or anything right. for as, like, a body that isn't, like, marked to be here and stuff. Yeah, I guess it's important if we are going to be forced to define queerness which I'm not saying we need to do, but that we have a definition that includes some kind of embodied embodiedness to it. Because I think that's why a lot of the folks here in our department who are queer and openly queer um, don't engage with, like, the queer, you know, like, queer theory playground or um, some of the other kind of, like, social... Um, it just kind of networking events or whatever you want to call it um, that we have and that's specifically because they don't you know they, they look at that thing and they think well like who do, who is this benefiting who is this you know is this just a place for us to kind of keep theorizing about queerness um, in our like pristine like ivory tower or are we like are we doing something to help queer bodies um, so. so, thinking about that, what is the purpose of composition? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's face. Composition with a big C or a little C? Uh, let's say composition studies. Okay, so big C. I would big say. C. A real big C. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's it, what is its purpose? Um, I think that depends on how you sort of want to situate it in the academy. I would say um, administration officials, um, WPAs also have an investment in this, um, which WPA, I mean writing program administrator, um, have an investment in this idea of um, 
we are here to prepare college freshmen um, for basically the writing that they're going to do in college. Um, we are a service to them, and then once our service is complete, that is all we're really supposed to do. Um, we are not supposed to produce anything tangible for the university, which means that um, we aren't as valued because we are not like falling into those like capitalist notions of production. Um, that's how I sort of see admin situating it. Um, and even some compositionists um, see it as that as well. Um, one thing I try to do with my students in class is constantly provoke them to question their university and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of like asking them to teach them how to compose for the university, I instead try to approach it from a position of, well, how is the university composed and how is the university composing you? Right. I was, so my MA was in technical communication and like there's no, there's like real, really no queer theory or like queer thinking going on in it at all. Unless somebody else has published something that I haven't read. So if you have, reach out to me. <laughs> um, but I remember talking to a professor and asking her, how can I do this? And she told me, well, first I need you to define queer for me because I can't, I can't see you using it in here by saying, oh, it's this weird thing, whoa, and I want to do this. Like, you need, like, we need specific definitions, we need specific applications, we need specific yeah. goals. So, I like what you just said because it kind of promotes this interrogative ethics where you're always questioning everything. So, if we're, if we're going back to, like, training and we're producing people who are going out into the workforce, we can at least give them an ethics that says hey, why am I working for this place? Like, what is my work doing? Um, what is, am I just supposed to work here for 20 years, change careers, work again, mm -hmm. retire, die, and pass my money on to my kids if I have any? Well, then what does that mean for people who can't have kids or don't have kids? Like, what happens to their capital? And why is it set up this way? And then maybe they can think about it broadly, but I don't know if that happens or can happen. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think out loud of like how queer theory can be incorporated into composition studies, if it should be. Um, and that might be one way of just having them look at issues specifically relating to queer bodies. Like, yeah. So I think one of the most powerful tools I was ever given was in one of my composition and rhetoric classes. And it was um, in a paper that I wrote, I said something like, maybe possibly I might not agree with this. And my teacher was like, you don't, like, your whole paper is about how you hate this and don't agree with it. Like, you're allowed to question these things. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, people with PhDs don't sing gospel? Like, you're kidding. I'm allowed to say, like, no, I don't agree with that. And so, like, the way that I compose myself and my queerness is through, like, um, through this way, which is, like, I don't, I was... I guess it's like I was allowed to resist the queer canon because I didn't see myself or any queer person that I know in it. Yeah. And so I think that was one of the most powerful tools I was given, and I'm not sure if it was given necessarily in those 16 weeks. I think that that's something that I took and I grew and I developed. And so like while I think composition wants us to be something that we like make good writers where good is like standard, um, I think... They, they made a lot of mistakes and taught me how to walk away with like a lot more powerful knowledge than maybe uh, the university wasn't really expecting or wanted. Yeah. Um, yeah, they created a lot of resistance in our, in our composition classrooms in my undergrad. 
I like what you talked about, like reading queer theory and not seeing yourself in it and like rejecting that canon, because that's what my experience was. I think like the first piece of queer theory I read was like, I don't know, I think it was Tim Dean and like this subculture around barebacking. And I was like, I don't care about all these white dudes like doing it with each other without protection. <laughs> like, how does this relate to my queerness in my life? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, just the way that queerness is like visible, um, like we all embody it differently. And just thinking about like, um, I really only saw, like, queer women as, like, middle-class lesbian women, and, mm -hmm. like, that is not who I am at all. Yeah. Um, like, I'm a working-class Latina woman, and I am, like, super femme, like, the femmest femme, and so... Same. <laughs> <laughs> Casual hair flip! Yeah. Um, and so, like, I don't know, I think composition gave me the ability to question, but then also, like, write myself into those stories but also in like very colonialist and in very colonialist terms and terms that are like imbued with like respectability politics like I am allowed to write myself in when it sounds like everything I've heard before mm -hmm. um, when I like disembody myself damn this has been some good ass conversation <laughs> I just want to say yeah I'm glad you're recording and I want to listen to it again <laughs> I don't know if I will because that'll be like a bit dysphoric for me but and that's another thing I was thinking about when you were speaking is, like, physical violence. Like, there's also, like, emotional trauma that accompanies mm -hmm. this. Like, just because you're read a certain way. Like, being read in the terms of respectability politics, like, you look like you could pass for a cishet white mm -hmm. man. Like, that is, like, traumatizing in its own very specific way, yeah. which isn't, like, mm -hmm. necessarily physically violent, but definitely dysphoric. Mm -hmm. Definitely emotionally traumatizing in a lot of ways. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think that that should be invalidated in any way. Actually, Raquel, that is um, why um, I insisted I speak up first, because I wanted to set the precedent with the pronouns, because I knew immediately people were going to hear my voice and assume, oh, this is a man speaking. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, listener. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Turf. it's... Um, <laughs> I've, um, I've, like... In the middle of the night in a gas station in Pennsylvania, uh, this is just one example. There's many, many examples. Um, I was just going to buy coffee, trying to drive home, um, and this the gas station lady stopped everything when she heard my voice. Because she was like, "Is that all?" And all I said was, "Yeah." And she was like, "You should be on radio, boy. What's what's up with your voice?" And I'm like, um, "I mean, I wasn't identifying as trans at the time. It wasn't a big deal, but like." For me, it's sort of like, yeah, my voice is always going to be a spot where, like, I'll probably always be read as a bit illegible because of that. Um, it doesn't matter if, like, I go into hormones and start passing. When I go in front of a class to speak, immediately they're going to recognize my voice as, like, a site of contention. Okay. Um, and so, like, that for me, like... That's a confrontation that, like, the only way to avoid it is to literally closet myself for the rest of my life. Um, and that, for me, means that, like, well, this is going to be a place of confrontation, at least in the composition classroom. I'm going to try and turn it into, like, another conversation about, like, how are our bodies being composed in the space and all that stuff, and how are my students trying to get them to turn back on their own sort of, like, self-reflective things. And... Um, I mean, I'm 
I love my students. I, I think they're like great, smart, wonderful people, and I think they've done really good work with that sort of interrogation. Um, and I think that a lot of that just comes from a willingness to sort of like say no to drugs. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and say, say no to the sort of like expectations the university wants out of your classroom and seriously interrogate the sort of like roles. Like if there's ever a way to queer a classroom, it is to um, deny it the sort of satisfaction of reproducing itself. Yeah. I, going, hmm. I have to think of something like that. But I still don't really buy into the whole conversation of queer the classroom because I don't think there's any one sort of activity or pedagogy that's going to like magically make this place burst with unicorns. And, <laughs> and it's interesting. There are some people here who are researching uh, what queer pedagogy looks like. And it's, it's interesting to hear what the definitions of that is. I know um, one grad student here who's researching that claims that queer in the classroom means like allowing like silence in your class um, which I think has a lot of subtext about queerness um, underlaid in it that I don't know is necessarily like the intention um, but yeah like that that being a definition of queerness and specifically queer pedagogy uh, I don't know if it's like I, I don't know if that definition is like critically engaging the other like ways that queer bodies have to exist in the academy, right? And what it means to exist in the academy. Both of your comments get at like queerness as it's accepted in the academy and what's mm -hmm. acceptable too, right? Because if we're talking about citing ourselves as an object of queer, or not an object, what am I saying? As as like a queer subject and using that to do work what does the university allow? What kind of composition program would allow Jay to use her own experiences yeah. to like teach her class, right? Yeah. Well, that's it. Do the next So we have um, a couple of minutes. If, if I don't know if anyone has a class to get to. I know we do, um, but I don't care about mind being late because it's worth watching. Yo, um, if I, Loki, if you were 30 minutes late and you were like, Rhodes, this is why, I think she would be like, she'd be, she'd be like, play it for class. Yeah, she'd be like, <laughs> just, just show up late every day if you're going to be doing this. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, anyways, yeah, thanks for coming out, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Coming in. Thanks coming out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bye.